1993, my parents had their first child, and it was a boy. In 1995, my parents had their second child, also a boy. That's me, by the way. In 1998, they had their third child, and it was a boy. And then in the year 2000, they had another child, and it was a boy. Four boys. I am one of four boys. Interestingly enough, my father was one of four boys, and all of his brothers, they've had many boys. The Bullock line is a line of men. Now, my mother, God bless her, she really wanted a daughter. And one year, she was overseas doing a short-term missions trip. And in this impoverished village, there were mothers there who were holding out their children to her and saying, please take my baby. Take my child back to Canada so it can have a good life, a better life. And just like think, think about that for a second. What would that take? How would, how would that tear you up as a parent? to offer up your child? How would that break you as a parent to have someone's child offered to you? So that experience helped to really lay adoption on the heart of my mother and father and the family. And soon after, my mother got the daughter she wanted when my now sister was adopted into the family. She came when she was two years old. I was 18 at the time. So quite an age difference. So I, I uh, this is not part of the sermon, I'm just sharing. I creatively uh, helped with her development. I helped teach her some of her first words in English. One of the first words she learned was the word heresy. That's important to learn at a young age. I taught her about taxation. I would jump out from behind the door and I would say, where's the money? And I would chase her down and tickle her to pay her taxes. We called this game government. I taught her important life lessons early on. Okay, uh, that's besides the point. But something strange started happening in the first couple months that she was here, besides that stuff. She would do something wrong, she would get in trouble, and then she would lose her mind. She would start screaming and freaking out and crying in a way that was really disproportionate to what happened. And in the midst of this, this meltdown, she would say, I don't want to go back. Don't take me back. I'm not going back to the baby house. And the baby house was what she called the orphanage where she came from. No baby house. No baby house. No baby house is what she would say. And my parents would tell her, like, don't, don't worry. We're not, we're not sending you back to the baby house. You're never going back there. She would say, never, never. And it took kind of months and years of this interaction and this reassurance for it to really sink in. Because you can be told this isn't happening, but this is kind of a belief that has to come into your heart, right? It's not just a cognitive idea. It's really got to seep into your identity. And when we are unsure of our identity, when we are unsure of our security, when we are unsure of our status, we do silly things. Have you ever had this worry before that if people really get to know you, then they won't actually like you. People will leave me if they see who I really am. People won't love me if they learn about my past. People won't like me if I screw up. I don't think you'll love me. How do I believe that? I don't think God loves me. How do I believe this? We do crazy things to figure out who we are. We do crazy things for affirmation and acceptance. In the words of Fight Club, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't know. 
So have you ever wondered who you are? Have you ever wondered if you're really accepted? Have you ever worried that someone in your life won't love you once they really get close to you? These topics, these ultimate questions of identity and security and family, are what we're going to be diving into today in Romans 8. Paul is looking at the most foundational level of these questions. So we're going to be looking at these questions today. How do I know I'm in Christ? How do I know I'm really in? How can I be sure of this? And we use the language in Christ because actually in the Bible, the word Christian is only used a few times. And it's used kind of as a derogatory term by outsiders. Christian means little Christ. They would go, ha ha, look at those people. They think they're little Jesus. But Paul always uses this language of in Christ for those who are Christian, as we would describe now. How do I know I'm in Christ? And even deeper than that, how do I know I'm in God's family? And even deeper than that, how do I know I'll always be in God's family? So let's dive right into it. Last week, we looked at this symphonic structure of Romans, how it's like a symphony, how in Romans 5 it says that we now have peace with God through faith. Because of what Jesus has done, we have peace with him. Romans chapter 6 talks about how we are free from our enslavement to sin. Romans chapter 7 talks about how we are free from the power and demands of the law. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul is talking about the identity of, of this new people, no longer condemned by our sin and also no longer complacent to our sin, but we're able by the power of the Holy Spirit to actually experience true radical transformation, not just behavioral modification. Okay, that's where we left off. Let's pick up this discussion now in Romans chapter eight. We're gonna be starting at verse 13, 13 of chapter eight. This is what we looked at last week. Paul says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now in verse 14, he's restating this. He's repeating it, but kind of flipping it on its head. For all who are led, this is an important word, led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Now, I'll return and explain this masculine language later. It actually serves a purpose. But these two words, led and sons, these are actually references back to what happened in the Old Testament. This is the same language used in Exodus to refer to Israel, how God led Israel. And the language of sons, both in plural and singular, son and sons, are also used to refer to Israel. Paul made this reference, uh, this parallel, this comparison a few times in the book of Romans. We have touched on it a few times before. So let me briefly summarize this. In the book of Exodus, God's people were enslaved in Egypt and God delivered them from their slavery, their oppression, their exploitation through his servant Moses. And God promised his people an inheritance, a place of their own, their own land. The promised land is what it's called. But in the meantime, as they were uh, journeying towards the promised land, they were wandering through the desert. And though they wandered, they weren't alone. God led his people through the desert and the wilderness. During the day, he led them by a cloud, and at night, he led them by a pillar of fire. Now, Paul invokes the same language here of leading and the same language of sons. 
to, uh, he uses this same language that's used to describe God's relationship with Israel. So we were previously enslaved to our old nature. We were enslaved to sin, enslaved to the demands of the law, stuck in a cycle of never being enough. Then God sent his son, Jesus, the Messiah, the true Moses, the better Moses, who leads God's people out of captivity. So we're reminded of this great truth, that God delivers his people. Now, God's people had the promise of land. They hadn't laid a hold of it. They were in this already but not yet that we talked about. And in the midst of this, they had the Ark of the Covenant. They had God's presence with them. They had God leading them by the cloud and by the fire. And for us today, because of what Jesus did, we now have God's Spirit with us as we are waiting to get a hold of all that God has promised for us. So we see that God dwells with his people. They had the Ark, we have the Spirit. And as God was with his people, he wasn't this passive voice just sitting there, but he was an active force leading them and delivering them. And the same with us today. We have God's spirit guiding us, prompting us, convicting us, growing us, challenging us, and transforming us. So we see finally that God directs his people. God delivers his people. God dwells with his people. God directs his people. We see all of that packed into verse 14. That's not even the main message of today. It's just that good. So this is how Paul can say, all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Because if God's Spirit is indwelling within you, he is indeed renewing you. We follow this pillar of fire, however imperfectly. We stumble, we trip, we get distracted, we take our eyes off and we have detours, but we follow. So this answers our first question. How do I know I'm in Christ? If the Spirit is in you, then you are in Christ. That's what we see in verse 14. So has God delivered you? Does he dwell in you? Does he direct you? Now let's keep reading verses 15 and 16. The next two verses basically serve as a justification. It proves what Paul just said. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, this is the first word, spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So Paul is distinguishing between two spirits here, two postures, two attitudes. One is the spirit of fear, the fear of punishment, the fear of a slave, the attitude of a slave. A slave obeys because he has to. He fears punishment and he's insecure. It's a view that says, I must perform well in my work for God, and then he will pay me my wages. If I do this, he will do this. He will answer my prayers, he will protect me, he will bless me, and so on and so forth. But if I perform poorly, God will punish me. God might fire me, I might get kicked out. This is the person who worries about doing enough, the person who worries about being enough, trying to get approval, trying to get praise, trying to be desirable, trying to be impressive, trying to be attractive, to be thought of as a good person. If I work hard enough, God will be pleased with me. I will be a good person. I will have a good life. He says that's the spirit of fear that we don't fall back into. If you remember the story of the prodigal son, I don't have time today to get all the way into it, but there's a son, uh, he goes away from home, he squanders his inheritance, and he ends up destitute and alone and broke. So he comes back home 
to his father, ashamed and embarrassed. And he asks his father if he can work as one of his servants. He thought, after all I've done, perhaps I can work for my father and earn some kind of security and provision and protection. And what does is, what is the father say in response to this? He laughs at the silliness of such a thought and he welcomes him back as a son. So for those of us in Christ, those whom have the spirit, you have not received this spirit of fear, this posture of trying to earn God's favor, of trying to make yourself good enough hoping he will accept you and like you. Maybe if I just do these things, then God will finally be pleased with me. Not at all. We don't have this spirit. What is the spirit that we have? The spirit of adoption. This is huge. If you can understand this, the spirit of adoption, it will change your life. I don't know how to state this more strongly. Some theologians have said, you can judge a person's understanding of Christianity by how well they understand the concept of adoption. So let me explain this. <sighs> to, to be a child in the ancient world, first century Rome, it was a terrifying thing. Children in the ancient world had no rights. Your father could beat you, he could maim you, he could kill you, he could do whatever he wanted to you. It was a terrifying existence. And some children were unwanted. Some children were rejected. So maybe a child was rejected because it was a girl and they wanted a boy to continue the family line. Perhaps a child was rejected because they had a a disability. Perhaps a child was rejected because they were illegitimate. Perhaps a child uh, was rejected simply because the family couldn't afford another kid. And people would leave their unwanted children out on the street with the garbage. In some cities, there were places where you could put an unwanted child. There was a designated spot for it. And if you were one of these unwanted children, there were basically three options of what might happen to you. The first was just simply death. Some children would die when they were discarded. That was option number one. The second option was that of slavery. A man might come along and take this child in, but use you as a slave. Boys were used as slaves of labor and girls were usually used as slaves of sex in prostitution. So they were treated as animals, not as family. They were beaten, they were abused, they were treated like animals. And the third option for an unwanted child was adoption. Hoping that a rich and wealthy family with power would choose to bring you in into their family and bestow you with privileges and an inheritance. Those were the three options. And Paul says that our spirit, for us, we aren't under slavery or death, but life and adoption. You are adopted as a son. Now, is Paul being sexist with his language here and choosing masculine language? No, actually, in fact, In the Roman law, daughters did not have any rights. They didn't have the same privileges. So if Paul used this language of sons and daughters, it it would actually weaken what he's saying about the status of us who are adopted as Christians. So Paul is radical in that he calls both men and women sons of God, saying that in Christ, women have the same status as men, even if 
The first century Roman culture failed to recognize this. That's a side point. Okay, but let's return to this. So imagine you're this child. You're rejected. You're abandoned. You're alone. You have no legal rights or guardianship, no family. And now you know that you are going to die or you're going to be taken by a man who will beat you and enslave you and maybe kill you. If you're a girl, you will probably be raped and then trafficked. And so you're that kid. You're scared, you're anxious, you're alone, you're powerless, you're cowering, and you're hiding. And you hear footsteps begin to approach you. And it's, it's a man, and he smiles and he says, I've adopted you. I'm your dad. I'm sorry for everything you've been through. You're safe now. I can do whatever I want, and I want to bless you. You have nothing. Everything I have is now yours. I'm very strong, and I will use all of my strength to protect you. I've got a home for you. I've got food for you. I have a family for you. You were lost. Now you're found. You were a slave. Now you're a son. You've been adopted. I chose you. I picked you to be mine. And now you're in. And once you're in, you will never be out. This is the story of every Christian. This is the heart of God for you. All you need to be is in Christ. Are you in Christ? Has the Son of God made you a child of God? Have you received the Spirit that allows us to call out to Him as our Father? This is the language that Paul uses to describe the position and the intimacy of the person who is in Christ. Timothy Keller puts it like this, the image of adoption tells us that our relationship with God is based completely on a legal act by the father. You don't win a father. You don't negotiate for a parent. Adoption is a legal act on the part of the father. It is very expensive and costly only for him. There's nothing the son does to win or earn the status. It is simply received. So adoption like justification, it's simultaneously legal and relational. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's verse 16. So the Spirit gives us the ability and the confidence to approach God as our Father, not as a slave master or a boss, but a child obeys their parent out of love. The child knows the security and the ongoing forgiveness of unconditional love. This is what the Spirit does in our heart. It helps build us in this attitude of knowing, I am a child of God, He loves me, and He will give me more than I deserve. My performance doesn't change my position in the family, but I want to work hard for Him because He's my loving Father. Consider this, parents. Uh, imagine if one of your kids came up to you and said, Hey, Mom, Dad. I'm going to go clean out the garage for the afternoon, and then you'll love me, okay? We got a deal? Yeah? Isn't that preposterous? That, that would be ridiculous. You'd probably laugh. You're thinking it's some kind of joke. It's that silly. And you would say, no, you don't need to clean the garage for me to love you. I already love you, but it would bless me if you did clean out 
the garage. And so this changes the dynamic. This is why we say that the Christian life isn't what we have to do, it's what we get to do. Now, just as there's an adoption record in a court of law, and it, you know, it has a signature, it has a seal, it has a stamp, this verifies the authenticity and it validates the rights and privileges of the adopted child going forward. So too do we receive a seal, a signal, a confirmation of our status. And this is through the Spirit. The Spirit himself bears witness. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 1.22. The Spirit is said to be a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Ephesians 1.13 says that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we are in Christ, Christ is in the Father, and the Spirit testifies to all of this. So this answers our second question. How do I know if I'm in God's family? If you are in Christ, then you're in God's family. And as amazing and comforting as this image of adoption is, it's not the end. It gets better. For to be adopted into the family is now to be an heir of the inheritance of the family. Let's go to verse 17 for the final piece of this puzzle. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and, this word is important, fellow heirs with Christ. We are in Christ and we receive what has also been set aside for him. Now, this is the hard word. Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So there's a bit of a connection between suffering and glorification. We'll get to that in a second. Okay, so being a child means that I have a family now. Being an heir means that I am included in the family forever. You have been grafted into the family of God. And so we are heirs only by our belonging to the Son of God, the true heir of all of God's promises. Jesus asked this of the Father in John 17, 24. I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So Christ offers to share his own inheritance, his own glorification with those whom the Father has given to him, meaning his disciples and all of those who will be with him. Okay, but here's the catch, right? That link that we did right there. If we want to be with Christ and we want to be in Christ to share all of the things he has for us, we also share in the things he experienced here on earth. And so it makes sense that the more we grow in his likeness, we also grow more in receiving what he received, including the great gifts from God, but also the persecution and suffering now. That's the link that we see right there. So I wanna show just a little bit of this, how this theme is shown in scripture. This concept is developed more next week, further on in Romans 8. I don't wanna to get too far ahead. Let me show you just a couple things. If the son learned obedience through suffering, so will the adopted sons, Hebrews 5.8. If the son carried around in his body the persecutions of the public, so will the adopted sons, 2 Corinthians 4.10. If the son grew weak under persecutions without losing heart, so are the adopted sons called to do likewise, 2 Corinthians 4.16. So it is conformity to the son that the adopted children are gaining day by day as we, to quote, 
are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18. So this helps us answer our last question. How do I know I'll always be in God's family? Well, it's like we just said, being a child means that I have a family now. Being an heir means that I have a family forever. This is incredible. So for us today, we can reflect both on our status and our experience of adoption. These are factors of identity and intimacy. And the Spirit aids us in both of these. So here's a question, and you can reflect on this today, but this is, this is something you could reflect on every day this week if you wanted to. Here's the question. Where do I need to be reminded of and strengthened in my identity and intimacy as an adopted child in God's family? Identi identity and intimacy. Where in my life do I not believe what God says about me? Where am I still believing lies? Where in my life am I still acting like someone who needs to earn approval, who needs to earn acceptance, who needs to be impressive, who needs to earn their place in this world? Where am I acting up, crashing down, lashing out, exploding, imploding, going in circles, doing things on my own when I just need to call out to the Father? Today we've looked at these three questions. How do I know I'm in Christ? How do I know I'm in God's family? How do I know I'll always be in God's family? And we've seen Romans 8 walk us through this chain. If the Spirit is in you, then you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, then you are in God's family. And if you are in God's family, you are a co-heir with Christ. So we move from spirit to sonship to heirs. We receive the spirit, we become God's adopted children, and we become co-heirs with the Son of God. So at Bayview Glen, for us today, let us be marked as a body of believers who live and lead out of our spirit of adoption, our status and our intimacy as members of God's family. And so in these times of uncertainty and fear and the unknown, both as a church, as we're seeking this new direction and new leadership and in the external world with all of the hoopla that's been going on around us, let us not lean more on our own understanding and our own strength, but remembering our adopted status, would we call out Abba, Father, and would we lean in to our new experience and our new identity, the new inheritance, the new nature, and the new privileges that we have as God's children? So let's, let's thank God for this. Let's praise him for this. And let's ask for greater encouragement and growth and to be reminded by his spirit and assured of these things when we don't always feel like it. Maybe reminded of this truth that is greater than us and all of our waxing and waning as we go and come. So let's thank God for this and ask for more. Let's pray. Would you join me in prayer? God, we, we thank you for this great truth of, of who we are, and, um, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done and the great price that was paid, Father, how we were destined for death and slavery, but you've given us life, life eternally with you and your Son and the inheritance 
of all the things to come in this new world and how we get to to partake and be co-heirs in this, Father. We thank you for all this, that, that you are the true inheritance, the greatest prize, the greatest treasure. Would you remind us of this? Would you help us in these areas? Would you nudge us and, and, um, and prune us, Father, and show us where we need to grow in this? And would you help us in this? We ask all this in your name. Amen.